What's up? What's up? What's up? Welcome back to the uh, For the Sake of Argument podcast. This is going to be our, I don't know what we even call it, maybe our third attempt at uh, doing another one of these. Yeah, we, kind we, of. We've, we've tried we've tried and had to come back to it a couple times, but you know. This is more like our the original one. The other one was a little bit more freeform. Yeah. But I, I, I freaking, I really enjoyed spending the time sitting down and talking about some of these issues. And last time when we were discussing, you know, stuff specific to the Second Amendment, we were talking about the history of it. It really led into the, what our conversation is going to be about today. So without further ado, I'll introduce my brother-in-law, the uh, savior of his little brother in times of need, Red. <laughs> and if you listen to the last podcast, you might understand that one. Do, no, we didn't talk about that in the last podcast. We talked about that before. Beforehand. Was that? Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. Well, to give a little context. So, um, you were maybe how old? I was in kindergarten. Kindergarten. So your and your, your kid brother was preschool aged. Right. And so, so this was back in the days when kindergarten was only a half day. Right. So, and for some reason, probably financial reasons, um, I had, uh, I was going to a different daycare, um, for after school than my brother was going to all day. Right. So, um, and well, okay. So I should backtrack a little bit. Um, we had just moved to the city that we were in. So it was and, a new area, but you were getting familiar with it already by that point. Yeah. 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 Well, the thing is that my mom hadn't started uh, a new job yet. So she was at home with us. And so every day I would come home from school and I would get up, I would get there and then we would go and we'd pick up my brother and, uh, then we'd spend the rest of the day there at home. Um, and I think, you know, they did the daycare thing with my brother so that that way my mom could have some peace and quiet instead of having to watch at least one of the kids all day. And we're not going to age you, but like just so everybody remembers, like this was pre cell phone era. Yes. <laughs> we'll just put it that way. It was pre cell phone era. Right. So anyway, um, we, I had not somehow I had not registered that I was supposed to go to this other daycare. So I was just treating it like any other day where I would come home yep. after kindergarten was over. So I get home. My mom has started a new job, so she's not at home. And I was supposed to go to the daycare. Well, she gets, which would have been like a separate bus or something like that. I think it, I think it was just a later stop. I think okay. it was the same bus. Yeah. But anyway, so she actually gets a phone call from the daycare. Uh, place because I never showed up and she's freaking out. <laughs> well, I, meanwhile, I'm not able to get into the house. You know, nobody's answering the front door. Nobody's answering the back door. Like I, I can't get in the house. And I'm like, crap, I have no idea where my parents are. I have no idea what's going on. Somebody's got to go get my brother. <laughs> and like, here we're, he comes. We're supposed to go pick him up. So, I mean, well, like I, if they're not here to let me in, somebody's got to look out for him. This, this so, is the logic of a kindergartner. Yes. The, like, I, I feel like you started really young with your logical path. Yeah, I tried. Like, we, we, we'll, we will handle this together. Yeah. And uh, because if you're going to be by yourself and without your parents, it'd be good to have a kid brother with you so you can whoop some butt, right? Well, I it was more <laughs> that I just wanted to make sure that he was okay. Yeah. And thinking that, okay, you know. So what? this is why you still cared about your brother. I, I've always cared I'm about kid, my brother. I'm messing with you. But anyway, so um, yeah, the. The daycare was was walking distance. Obviously, we, we usually walked over there to get my brother, mm -hmm. um, but I, I walked all the way over there to uh, <laughs> to pick up my brother. And with I get the Transformers backpack on. No, <laughs> no, I think I might have had a Batman backpack, but yeah, anyway. I like that. I, that's a solid solid one. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I go to uh, I go to pick him up, and of course 
here, this little kindergartner showed up. Yeah, I'm, I'm here to pick up my little brother. Y- you're what? Where's your mom? Don't know. Don't know, but <laughs> Bubby needs picked up. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they kept me there and they called my mom and then my mom had to come and pick me up. And uh, yeah, so, and I, I, I didn't know what was going on. I don't remember being afraid. Yeah. I just felt like, okay, well, I don't think any part things, of that story got to get done. I don't think any part of that story indicates fear at all. Starting from kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. Just confusion, but Hey, yeah. you know what? I'm just going to roll with it. Improvise, adapt and overcome. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> just roll to the next objective. Right. <laughs> so, well, allow me to introduce my brother-in-law, a man whose poop actually does smell like perfume. Abrams. <laughs> And, and it wasn't all the time, and it, it's not currently. <laughs> no. But no, no it's, it's just one story. <laughs> yeah. Now, back when I was a kid, um, I apparently confused applesauce and uh, apple juice with some really nice taboo perfume that my mom got. So the way my sister tells it was freaking hilarious because she's <laughs> like, she's like, you know, basically my mom didn't get a lot of gifts from my dad that were super meaningful. And this taboo was for Christmas, and this was meaningful. This is the first time he really kind of did something that, she actually wanted, right? Instead of thinking about himself, because let's admit it, sometimes as guys, we're we're bad at the whole gift thing. We're like, oh, this looks cool. That'll work. You know, we don't we don't really know what we're supposed to do. So he um he goes and gets her this, and she gets it for Christmas, and I'm in diapers, and and back then cloth diapers, and so my parents were used to you know run them through the wash and that sort of thing, but uh, I, I there was two bottles that it came with, one that was kind of a long term you know refill type thing, and then a smaller one for you know spritzing on you and stuff, and I drank all the small one and about half of the big one <laughs> before somebody realized something was going on because I was being suspiciously quiet, so you know my sister comes and checks on me, so. Um, but yeah, it was a solid week, week and a half of um, taboo poop. <laughs> so if you can imagine washing those diapers. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, thank goodness for disposable diapers if you can afford them. But gee, many Christmas. Like, I'm, I'm glad I was the kid in that situation, oh. not the parent. <laughs> well, and I think that anybody who's ever... Anybody who's ever had to try to use the Febreze to cover up a really bad bowel movement, like, you know, it's, you know, going in after somebody who's done that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. The, the Febreze doesn't mask the smell. It just adds to it. So now it smells like perfumed crap. Now imagine taking the Febreze through the intestines with the poop. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not Febreze. That's that's concentrated perfume. That's (laughs) way more oils of essence to it. (laughs) Call it essence of, of abrams if we will <laughs> a, a true eau de toilette oh, totally yeah <laughs> my poop didn't really stink well it, i i imagine it would have had to been like putrid just oh, absolutely nasty i don't yeah. think there's anything good about you know perfume and poop, baby poop no no <laughs> all right so let's get off of that crappy subject <laughs> <laughs> right uh well we got something to drink today don't we oh we do so that's uh, this actually ties a little bit into our uh topic um Oh, it kind of does. I, 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 I can already see a, a tie. Yep. So uh, we've got Maker's Mark cask strength. Cask strength, and uh, so this is a uh, Kentucky bourbon, and it's actually a fifty-four point nine proof. Mm. I actually received this from my old boss. So when I was in the Navy, the uh, the last boss that I had in the Navy, and uh, the best boss that I've ever had. 
yeah, he was, he was a great guy. We're still friends to this day. Um, which is actually why I have this because he sent it to me, but, uh, yeah, wonderful guy. Um, didn't originally get along very well, Yeah, but, uh, that was because we actually had once he cracked the code of, uh, red's brain. Well, no, it was along. more of, it was more of a, a first impression. It was not the best kind okay. of situation. And so I thought of him differently than he really is. And he thought of me differently than I really am. And it mm-hmm. was, um, it was something that took a little bit of time and getting to know each other. Then we became really close. But, um, anyway, so this is, uh, like I said, this is a bourbon whiskey and it's, is this aged at all? Or is this just, Oh oh, yes, it's, it's absolutely aged. Um, you can tell if a whiskey's aged, if it's got a darker color. So the darker color actually comes from the polymers and the wood breaking down and they're aged in, in wooden casks. Cause it basically starts out as almost a clear, yes, slight yellowy tint. Maybe no, 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 not yellowy. It should be clear, clear. Yep. And then they put that into the, uh, the barrels and then that'll age for a while. And the barrels are charred. Right. They they burn them. Don't they? I don't think they use like a fluid or anything, but I think they just put coals in there and get it. No, they actually, usually they'll put them, um, I don't know what they traditionally did, Propane but torch nowadays, probably. yeah, they use a torch <laughs> yeah. and they'll put the, uh, the barrel over the torch and, uh, burn the insides and then they'll put the, uh, how thick of a layer of char is it just, I mean, I don't think school? it's super thick. Yeah. I, I'd, I, I've watched a, a documentary where they've done that, but I've never inspected it personally. Yeah. So no, it's, it's got a strong scent when I put my nose over, I'm like, Ooh. it does. I'm not a traditionally a big bourbon guy. Yeah. Um, I think it's the corn whiskeys. I don't like the, the corn uh, as much as I like the, the other grains. Yeah. So like scotch is typically done with, uh, with barley or wheat or a mixture. Um, most Irish whiskeys are done the same way. Um, and then you've got rye, which is obviously made from rye, which is where the, the, the name comes from. I don't, I don't like the corn whiskeys quite as much as I like other whiskeys. I, I still like it, mm-hmm. but it's just, it's going to be the lowest rung of my, my whiskeys, <laughs> but it's still, like I said, it's no, still it's, good. Yeah. I just took my first sip of it. I mean, it's, that's solid and it's got a lot of, I mean, I, there was probably like three or four different phases of flavor that happened there. Your initial hit of it's just very, very strong. And then you start getting, you know, like you talk about a lot of subtle tones and definitely, you can definitely taste the, the smoky flavor in it. Yeah. And that's like what I talked about, about complex flavors on the last one that we did with, uh, with Grizzly. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's great. You know, you get, you get different layers, different, uh, different flavors hitting you at, at different times, like you said. Yeah. And of course, because this is a little bit higher proof, it's got a little bit more of a burn on the aft end. It but, does, it, but it's smooth. It's not, it, this is not tear you up kind of. No, no, no levels. <laughs> well, today we were, we, when we had the second amendment podcast and we talked about the history one of the things we, we both felt like we wanted to jump into was the more modern day, um, like what have we done with it since we instituted the Second Amendment, basically telling the government to recognize that the people have a right to bear arms. Yes. And what and I kind of hinted at this in that podcast about what uninfringed means. <laughs> and it's very specific, like you can't impede it in any way, shape or form. Right. But government has done that. Yes. And there's a lot of people who argue there's a, a basis for that. And they give a lot of different you know reasons. But I think what we wanted to get into today was specifically something that happened in the, in, I guess the early 1930s. Is that accurate? Yep. And, and why don't you introduce the subject for us, Red? All right. So today we are going to be talking about the National Firearms Act. So 
Um, as you said, it was passed in 1934. Um, and we're going to get into, you know, what, uh, what led up to that, um, what the, the process was like going through. And, uh, I'm going to touch briefly on some of the, um, uh, some of the changes that have happened over the years. I'm not going to go fully. Have they really that. changed the original act? Yes. Okay. Yes, they have. There's been a couple of them, a couple of changes to it. Um, and, and we'll go into that yeah. later. So the national firearms act is basically, it is, is the government saying we, we recognize that there are dangerous weapons that are more dangerous than some. And they wanted to basically label them as something special specific and put controls in place for it. And it grew out of an era where there was, there was a lot of uh, social interactions outside of firearms. We're talking about like the prohibition era and we're talking about a lot of, of, of cultural shift going into that kind of idealistic 1950s that everybody imagines when we watch, you know, shows and stuff, you know, I love Lucy, you know, perfect household, that type of thing. And that puritanism culture was driving a lot of policy in the United States. So what was, what was kind of the things you saw were the key lead ups to the NFA? So the, the biggest thing is the temperance movement. Okay. And I'm not going to go too far into this. Um, you heard a brief, um, kind of a rant. I'm going to call it a rant. Yeah, it is a rant. It's, it's, it's more of a, a synopsis yeah. of my, uh, my rant, my feelings on the temperance movement and how that that's actually the cause of a lot of the problems of modern America. So what, what's temperance really mean in this particular situation? So temperance was a push against um, alcohol. So a push to, for, to, for prohibition for people to stop using alcohol. There was a lot of heavy drinking at the time. Mm-hmm. People would drink at work. Um, there was people would drink throughout all hours of the day. And there was um, no controls on any kind of the production of alcohol at that point. Is that correct? There was, there were, um, licensing fees. Sure. Um, but I mean, were, there like, were taxes that actually made up about a fifth of the, the government's annual revenue were taxes on alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually the, the earliest form of what we now call the ATF or the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. Mm-hmm. ATF for short. That was actually um, worked for the Department of Revenue yeah. or the Bureau of, of Revenue, a Bureau of Internal Revenue. And that was the precursor to the IRS. Okay. So they worked for the uh, the Department of the Treasury. So they were and, like a tax collecting. Right. And so they were actually the uh, revenue laboratory. Oh, Okay. Yes. I didn't know. What the, so we established a laboratory to actually study science around this no, issue? No, no, no. Um, okay. Because <laughs> laboratory, like that's my first thought is like, you say laboratory, it's like, oh, we're going to study something. We're going to test things. We're going to, we're going to try to do something very specific scientifically with this. No, the revenue laboratory was essentially like meaning like the, the department, like the sub department, um, was the laboratory. Gotcha. Um, so the revenue laboratory was, like I said, it was a sub department of the Bureau of uh, Internal Revenue okay. and were the ones that went around essentially to enforce the taxes that were on uh, production of alcohol. So they would go after a lot of the bootleggers and stuff and the, the early bootleggers, not the ones that we typically think of from the prohibition area, but early bootleggers that didn't want to pay the alcohol the tax, taxes. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. So that was that was where they originally got their start. Was but, that established by like uh, was this an executive branch decision? Was this legislature that enacted some law that created this? Well, there were there were actually the the earliest taxes on on whiskey were were done during George Washington's 
time as yeah. president. So they actually enacted uh, whiskey taxes as a method of paying for the American Revolution, paying for the, the debts incurred during the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. And that was actually what uh, led to the Whiskey Rebellion. And so talking about, um, you know, the the ability of militia to have firearms that we did on uh, the last one with just the two of us. Um, so George Washington had to lead the fight against the whiskey rebellion, yeah. a group of uh, people that were saying, Hey, we just fought this, this war revolutionary against, war against the British because they were taxing us unfairly. And now you want to put, uh, to put excess taxes on whiskey. We're not going to allow this. So, and there were a few other things that were included in that, mm-hmm. um, a few other reasons why they, they rose up. But, you know, George Washington had to put that down as the executive. And even after that, he was still fully in favor of civilians owning owning weapons. Mm-hmm. So that was... Uh, so so even facing the first kind of insurrection, if you will. Exactly. <laughs> and he was still supporting, hey, let's keep the Second Amendment intact. In fact, the majority of people that, uh, that rose up in the Whiskey Rebellion weren't even prosecuted. Okay. The majority of them were able to just take their, their guns and go home. Yeah. So, um, but away from that backtrack. So that's when, that's when taxes really started. Um, and I'm, so we kind of I get to that point now in the 1930s where it's well, this, being, this is way before the 1930s. I know, but I'm saying like leading the lead in. So like say 1930 to 1934, their job in that era, in that time frame, had been also dealing with the alcohol or was it specifically only firearms? It was no, it was all alcohol. Okay. So up to that point. So there was a temperance movement that was pushing for the ban of alcohol all the way from the late ni- late 1800s up through uh, the early 1900s. And it was actually passed. They had uh, the Volstead Act, which was the basically enforcement uh, law that mm-hmm. was behind the 18th Amendment, which was the Prohibition Amendment. So, and then the the Volstead Act was the law that gave the government the ability to go in and prosecute people for not for drinking alcohol, but for manufacturing and for selling alcohol. Um, there were uh, actually a lot of um, bars and stuff that before before prohibition became law, they stocked up on as much as possible. <laughs> and then they would do other things. They wouldn't directly sell you alcohol. They would sell you a ticket to some sort of entertainment kind of thing. Yeah, I got a little show and, in the back. <laughs> exactly. And then they would give you the alcohol. Uh, and gotcha. then, you know, you would usually like I, I went to a place in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. It's, it's a old bar from the prohibition era that's still operating. It's called the blind tiger. And the whole idea was that they had a blind tiger there and you'd come in, you'd buy a ticket to go see the blind tiger yeah. and they'd give you uh, <laughs> a give little, you shot a little of bit of rum punch okay. when, uh, or it might've been whiskey punch. Anyway, some sort of alcoholic drink when you, uh, when you came in to see the blind tiger and then when you were done with your drink, you left and you came out back to the front and you bought yeah. another ticket and you got another, another drink. Uh, you know, there were a lot of businesses that operated that way as kind of a squirrel moment for myself, I started realizing as you were talking about this, that I actually had some history through my religious upbringing that ties into this because initially I was thinking, I'm like, man, is it, was it really all the way back to the 1800s that they wanted to start quailing the use of alcohol mm-hmm. and even tobacco? And then it was that piece of like, cause I was thinking about the ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. The firearms didn't really become a part of this, but in, in the history of, of 
of Abrams. Okay. I grew up in a church. that was very regimented and they had prohibition themselves, even still to this day within the religion to be a good member in standing with the church. You have to, you'll preclude yourself from the use of alcohol and the use of tobacco. And it goes back on quotes, people like the wife of the person that started the church. And she's saying specifically that she was offended by the fact that she would come in and there's tobacco being spit on the floor of the church. And people were coming in drunk from being out all night and being, you know, stupid. And so she discussed that with her husband and was like, you might need something for this. Like this is getting out of control. And there, especially this was in, you know, the, the New York area, uh, upstate New York. And so it was, uh, you know, it was normal for everyone to drink coffee and, you know, drink alcohol and spit tobacco. It was, it was very common, but because of her opinions and because of, you know, how she didn't like the church being basically mistreated like that, she felt like it needed some sort of reverence. Then the church enacted uh, this thing called the word of wisdom. And the word of wisdom basically says, oh, well, God came and revealed to me that uh, we need to stop this. And it was kind of, again, that era of church history in my background was all rooted around the same idea of like the the kind of the Puritan beliefs that came, you know, through different religions. Um, But it it still has like that idea of like, hey, we need to do something socially to combat the issue of alcohol and tobacco. And so I I guess I know it's a a little side topic, but it, it finally hit me. I'm like, oh, this is literally back in the 1830s that this issue was cropping up and they were starting to prohibit the use of alcohol and tobacco to be a, a member of this church in the 1830s. So oh. yeah, it, it definitely goes back to then. I can see that. Well, and there was a, there was a big period of escalation from the late 1800s through to the early, uh, 19 teens. Okay. When, uh, it was 1919 when the, uh, prohibition was actually passed, but there, and that's a topic for another podcast because I could go a lot into that, mm-hmm. and uh, I will share my uh, my feelings of how the Which temperance is movement is the cause of a lot of America's problems. Well, if we're looking at history, what's happening in, in 1919? We just finished the Great War. Yeah. And you've got families that are just devastated by this war, that are devastated by the economic repercussions. You've got soldiers coming back that have seen way worse war. I mean, truthfully, if you go back and listen to the history, it is incredible what they dealt with over there. And the levels of PTSD and shell shock were rampant. And so I can only imagine that uh, some people were looking at that and saying, we got to do something about this alcohol because it's ramping up into a major problem. So it was actually a lot, a lot of that was before that. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the soldiers returning home were some of the reasons why uh, people were trying to subvert uh, prohibition. Okay. <laughs> trying to deal with some of the issues that they'd, they'd faced. Right. Um, and also feeling like I just, I fought for this I just country. fought for this country. I just went through all that hell. And now you're telling me I can't drink. Screw right. you. So that's the true America attitude right there. Absolutely. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, so yeah, so they, they pushed prohibition and there were, there were a lot of things um, that, there were a lot of side effects of prohibition and it was, you know, the, uh, the consequences of good intentions, you know, unintended consequences of good intentions that it caused a lot of problems. Um, so there were, again, we'll, we'll, we'll do more about uh, prohibition on another, another podcast, but just briefly, there were, there was the rise of speakeasies. Um, you know, there were uh, a lot of, subversive ways that society was dealing with these issues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry. I kind of lost my train of thought there trying to 
prevent myself from going off down down rabbit holes. It's it's hard but, to do sometimes because this this ties in like I think the reason both of us want to hit this particular subject is because it is tied into so much of the American history. It is the American history story, and then it's this glaring like it, it's the sore thumb sticking out like a sore thumb in the history of where things started shifting as far as polit- geopolitical you know power. Absolutely. Well, because so, because it turned us like we, we we result in being a superpower through the Second World War. No, through this, the First World War. Right. It, it was, but it, it wasn't until Nagasaki and Hiroshima that everyone, including Russia, was like, "Oh, that we we we, we rise as the predominant world power after the Second World." That's what War. I mean. Yeah. But we were recognized as a world power after the First. Absolutely. World War. So during the during the early 1900s, you had an influx of immigrants from uh, from other places in Europe than what had traditionally been America. A lot of what America was at that time were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Um, a lot of times they're referred to as wasps. Wasps, that, that, that works. <laughs> but um, now all of a sudden you had uh, you had the potato famine in Ireland that brings over a whole bunch of the Irish. Uh, you had a lot of, a lot of tyranny and uh, infringements on, on people's rights and stuff in uh, despotism going on in Italy and in other places in Eastern Europe, um, which brought over a lot of uh, Southern Italians and a lot of Jewish uh, uh, Eastern Europeans. So now all of a sudden you've got a large group of of immigrants from areas that are not traditionally American, what, what Americans trace their heritage to. And all three of those areas, all the three of those groups of people came from places where the government was despotic. The government was tyrannical towards them. Yes. And regularly violated their rights. And so they had a very anti-government view, a very anti-authoritarian view. And uh, in a lot of... Which was the messaging. I mean, if you're over there in one of those countries, that's the messaging you hear about the United States is they gave the finger to the United Kingdom and said... Hey, we're free. We're yeah. going to remain free. So, hey, let's let's go over there, guys. <laughs> right. And let, let's go over there and let, let's be free. Right. And the so uh, there were a lot of times, especially over in Ireland, where they were facing the the long um, subjugation by the British, where they violating the laws and going against the government and subverting the government was actually a point of of pride and patriotism to these people. You get these groups that come over, they're they're outside of the normal group. They don't mesh quite as well. A lot of people, a lot of the uh, Americans of the time were skeptical of them and hesitant because, I mean, especially this is all not only are they from different parts of Europe, but they're also different uh, religious backgrounds. So the mm-hmm. Irish and the, the Italians were predominantly Catholic. And then of course the Jews were Jewish. Right. So you've got groups of people that then they, they come over. They're not homogenizing very well. They're sticking with their own groups because they, they kind of have to, in a way they're being looked at as the other group. Um, and they're trying to, to survive that way. Also and they're, because they're that's the way that lower they, social economical status. Yes, yes they are. Well. And they also are, are relying on one another because that's how they survived um, when they were over in Europe. Well, so you have the rise of certain organized crime rings. And for, originally it, w- it was very small. There were things like there were um, there were newsstand wars, for lack of a better term. Okay. Um, the newsies. <laughs> right. So the thing is, is that you had newsstands and these uh, these newsstands would have certain territories and they were the only newsstand allowed to be within those territories. Now, this was not a government thing. And it wasn't just a newsstand. Like they were out delivering papers and they were supposed to be the ones to be well, the distributor no. for the papers in that geo 
area. Yeah. In that geographical so, area. So they would, and this, and like I said, this wasn't the government that was saying this has to be this way. These were the operators of these businesses saying that it had to be that way. Right. They're trying to prevent competition. So if some other group came in and was competing with them, they would send all of their thugs to go and, and take them out and knock down their newsstand, burn all of their, their wares. Um, there were other racketeering operations going on in the docks, um, especially uh, in New York and Boston. So, and you had essentially, like they, they were, a lot of this was not stuff that would affect most people. It's not, well, was, it's not going to necessarily affect the, the market in the United States completely. Right. They were, these were very small localized, localized yeah. organizations, and they would, they would operate and make their money very locally. Now, with the, uh, the introduction of prohibition, now all of a sudden you've made something illegal that was very widely used all across America. And I'm not going to go fully into this, but even a lot of politicians and who save- supported, quote unquote, Prohibition were still drank regularly, and and save the this characterization of this situation for later because this comes into the discussion about firearms. I can like I'm already seeing down the road where we're heading, and this is an important distinction distinction to make when it comes to alcohol. Was again, it was prevalent. Yes, very prevalent. It was everywhere. It was pretty much in every household. <laughs> there was, I'm sure, there was you know, you know, you had Mormons and Puritans and you know, you know, Hasidic Jews, Quakers, and, you know, and Quakers. Stuff. Yeah, you, you had a lot you of had people groups that wouldn't, that, but you know, it was it was still a vast majority of the population was was involved in that industry. Right, and so and when they passed prohibition, there were a lot of people that are like, well, I, I drink all the time, or I brew my own beer or distill my own spirits. You know, a lot of them were, were saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to follow this. And so there were, like I said, you know, the ownership of alcohol and the consumption of alcohol wasn't banned. It was the manufacturer and selling. Okay. So, um, and then there were even certain allowances within that. Um, again, starting to go down rabbit holes, but those organized crime rings now saw a really big potential moneymaker in being able to sell and distribute alcohol under the under the table. They were you saw the rise of speakeasies. You saw um, mo- mostly it was it was bars and things that people would would go to, and they would these uh, uh, organized crime rings would either supply the alcohol or they would run the alcohol and well, they like run security at the facilities as well. Uh, yeah, like kind of have so there was actually a roughnecks lot. around hanging out well, trying there, to keep the peace. There was there was a very very intimate relationship between the distributors and the operators of uh, of these clubs. A lot of times, um, it became the the gangsters that were doing this distribution and doing. Um, some of them were were actually distilling. Some of them were just bringing things in from over in Europe, over in Canada, uh, different areas, but. They a lot start of them started to own. do make to run their own clubs. They yeah. would either purchase clubs that existed already. They would start their own clubs. There was and but as these businesses are are starting to grow, the the business of selling the, this illegal alcohol, they're starting to compete with one. Another. And we've already seen how they don't like competition. Mm-hmm. So since they're and since they're doing an illegal business, doing some more illegal activity is not exactly scary to them. So it's not exactly a deterrent. So you start to see things of them stealing each other's um, alcohol trucks. So there were there were a lot of times when they would bring over. It was very easy to find out. Hey, these trucks contain alcohol, and this is the road that they're they're going on. And so they would go and they would intercept them. Um, I started off relatively civil 
meaning a lot of times it was just stealing the just wares. Just tit for tat on the stealing, right. not so much violence. Right, and then it slowly became more and more violent. Um, and Is this so, like Gangs of New York violence that we're talking about? I've not did it seen Gangs of New York. Oh, you're missing out, Red. Like that is that is a staple movie. It really is a quality production. Uh, but it's it's you know basically two factions of you know Irish immigrants that kind of face off. I mean that's the the plot of the movie. I, I'm not giving away secrets from that. No, but no, I got you. But it was just this idea of you know these communities living in squalor and and there would still rise the power these small groups and they would run the show and whoever had the muscle controlled the city. Well, and that's how, that's how all of this started. Yeah. And so you had, and because you had a lot of police officers that wanted to drink and a lot of politicians that wanted to drink, it was very easy to keep them paid off. Sure. It was very easy to get them to look the other way. So, and even when it came to some of the more um, heinous actions that they were doing, a lot, a lot of the murders and stuff, it was because the politicians and police officers were taking bribes on alcohol, they were willing to take bribes on other things as well. This, this is just, for me, you know I'm imagining in my head right now? That scene in Batman Begins with Christian Bale and uh, what's her name? Anyway, she's sitting down with a, a city politician at a at a basically kind of like a speakeasy, you know, bar where they're they're sitting down and 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 she's overhearing him making underhanded deals and this kind of thing. It just reminds me of that era of like the politicians sitting there with the criminals and the criminal element and basically letting them get away with stuff and handing them, you know, the firearm to go kill someone. Oh, I know <laughs> you what know? you're talking about now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Katie Holmes. Thank you. Katie yeah. Holmes. Yeah. Um anyway, so but yeah, no, there was a lot of that. You'd have the politicians and you'd have the uh, and you'd have the police officers there in the speakeasies and mm-hmm. you com- all completely on the take. And a lot of times some of the heads of the the crime families and the crime organizations were a lot more powerful than the politicians. So um, I think that one of the famous it was famously said the, the guy who was in charge of uh, of the New York Irish mob, I, his name was Oni Mulligan, I want to say. Oh, oh no, Oni Madden, Oni Madden, and uh, it was uh, it was referred to that if you knew Oni Madden, it was essentially like knowing the mayor of New York. Okay, yeah. so that that was the kind of power <laughs> and influence that he wielded. So, um, so yeah, there was there was a lot of corruption going on there, and you just saw escalations when it came to crime and what these uh, mobs were willing to do to one another. So. The local law enforcement really wasn't capable of handling the issue. Oh, that's, you, no, really, really weren't. And I mean, local law enforcement, they had uh, the, it was the, the firearm of the time it was made in, uh, it was made in 1927. It was a double action, six shot uh, revolver. Okay. And this was the most popular uh, handgun uh, produced for a very long time. And it's because pretty much almost every police department was using this. And there was variations in the caliber that they would use because it was made in several different calibers, but essentially it's a six shot revolver. Okay. And well, as these crime organizations are facing each other off more and more often, they start escalating in the weapons that they're using. And at the time there were no regulations on, on weapon purchases. So you could get in the Sears catalog, you could order a Thompson submachine gun. And so they crime organizations started using uh, the best weapons, weapons they could, yeah, the afford. best weapons they could. They started using Thompson's. They started using uh, Browning automatic rifles. They, they started using well, a lot of things that were not really prominent uh, at that time. And especially not used by law enforcement because they weren't facing that kind of stuff. And, and to, to also put into context a little bit of the type of, uh, 
the important thing to know about the BAR, the Browning Assault Rifle. Browning um, Automatic, automatic rifle. rifle. I'm sorry. I, I like to throw the word assault in like I'm a politician. Excuse <laughs> me for that one. <laughs> but uh, but then also the Thompson submachine gun. These were weapons that were used during the war. And well, these were a lot of a lot of soldiers were familiar with these weapons. And a lot of times you had ex-military that were involved. Like, you know, it's just it's just how it happens. You know, you go back to your, you know, where you're from, where you grew up in New York City and you're back and you got nothing to do after the military. Oh, well, I know how to use this weapon, and hey, that's a great weapon in war. Why don't we? Why don't we pick those up? So I, I haven't seen. I, I never read anything stating that, but I will say the the Browning automatic rifle was used in World War II. It, it mm-hmm. came in later on in World War II. It was developed as a method of being able to uh, fight better in trench warfare, as was the Thompson submachine gun that was developed for for sub, for trench warfare. Both of them came out long after the trench warfare. Or I think the Browning automatic rifle was at the very end of trench warfare in World War One, but more like things were starting to move more by that point. Um, the Thompson never made it to the trench warfare. I, I'm in fact I don't think the Thompson really made it out into World War One. Mm-hmm. I think the the first purchase, we're talking like a twelve years after World War One is is in this era twelve fourteen well, years. This is all this is all growing. Into it. This is right. all growing. This is it started in in 1919 and it's growing throughout the 1920s and until we get the uh, the National Firearms Act in the 1930s. So this is, look at this as a story of, of growing events. So some cops that are actually trying to stop some of this crime. And so, because not all the cops were dirty. So, but now they're facing, they're going up against uh, mob guys that have, they've got... Uh, automatic weapons. They've got... Uh, and they're starting to defend their product. Right. And they've got semi-automatic uh, rifles and semi-automatic handguns. And even just having like a Colt 1911 at the time, that was that had eight shots yeah. and much quicker to reload than that six-shot revolver that most of the cops were carrying around. And some of the cops would have like a 12-gauge shotgun. But, I mean, essentially, they, they were they were outgunned every time. So they started purchasing more things like the Thompson submachine gun, Browning automatic rifles, other weapons so that they could be able to go up against these growing organized crime rings. But then you also had things like just these gangs that would, there were a lot of gangs that weren't even necessarily organized crime from a standpoint like we traditional think of, of, of running speakeasies and stuff. You had like John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde and a few others that went around and essentially just did a lot of robberies. Yeah, and, just renegades. Right. And so a lot of them were using uh, automatic weapons. Uh you see, so there were, there were a lot of, there was a lot of concern about this, a lot of concern about the rising crime and the rising violence. Uh, and it all kind of came into a head in, uh, 1929 and 1929, they had the St. Valentine's day massacre, which is where, um, in Chicago, there were a group of uh, Italian mob that went and essentially were pretending to do a deal with Irish mob and then showed up dressed uh showed up there had a bunch of people show up dressed as police officers and special investigators so that the irish mob was thinking oh crap we're busted well all right well we're gonna go to we're gonna go to jail we'll bribe the right people and we'll get out (laughs) right well that's not what happened these guys weren't cops they were like i said italian mob and they turned them all around facing a wall and they mowed them all down with Tommy guns. So this became a rallying cry for, Hey, we need to, we need to put an end to this. We need to stop the, this, um, 
this prevalence of mob crime and, and a lot of people were blaming it on the, the guns themselves. Mm-hmm. I know. I almost squirreled on that one too. Oh yeah. That's something that's still <laughs> going on today is people yeah. blaming the weapons instead of blaming the people. Well, it's, but uh, I'll make one comment about it. <clears throat> and I thought this was a very interesting comment related to the gun being the problem. The it, it's, you hear it a lot nowadays that guns are killing people. Why don't we say that when we see an officer involved shooting? We're saying the officers are the problem when an officer shoots someone, right? So the person, the human being behind the trigger is the problem. But if we remove that context and we put just a, a school shooter or someone who goes to a mall and shoots people up and we put them as the shooter, now it's the gun that's the problem, not the human being. Right. That's not a fair Well, assessment. And we also see the same thing when it comes to, um, like there have been mass stabbings in Europe and they don't say, you know, knife problem. Well, Britain has kind of started to, but that's because their knife crime has become so prevalent in Britain. Um, but yeah, I mean, people, when a bomber, like when the, uh, Oklahoma when, city, well, I wasn't thinking of Oklahoma city. I was thinking of Boston, the Boston marathon, bombers, okay. the two, uh, the two Sorry, Sarnia there. brothers. Yeah. They, people didn't say, Oh, we've got a bomb problem. They, they said they, we have a people problem. Yeah. <laughs> they, they yeah. were, they were upset at the terrorists, but yeah, but they, back then everybody was looking at it and saying, we, the amount of people that are dying because of this, the amount of violence that's occurring in our city, and it's because these guns are just slaughtering people. Well, and not only that, a lot of, a lot of the government didn't want to admit, admit that, hey, this is our fault because we pushed prohibition. So we allowed for this this crime to start growing. Right. And uh, yeah, they, government doesn't want to admit that they made mistakes. They just want to say, oh, well, no, it's it's not really because we made prohibition. It's it's because they have all these guns. So I, like I said, after 1929 is when that happened. And then you see you see multiple pushes for gun control, uh, but some before that and some after that. So before that period. And, and by gun control, you're meaning more of just like a maybe a ban, kind of so, like the alcohol more moving towards like, Hey, you you can have one firearm to defend yourself, but you don't need anything else. No. So there was no federal government, federal gun control of any kind. There were some States and local municipalities that had passed certain things. Um, honestly, a lot of them were, were racist, racially based saying, Hey, uh, blacks can't have firearms. Um, and that goes back all the way, even into, the uh, the 1700s, there were laws that were placed in, in certain areas. Slaves couldn't have firearms. Native Americans couldn't have firearms. But as far as federally, there was there were no laws, and there were a lot of cries against those certain states and uh, municipalities that had put those bans, saying, "Hey, this is completely unconstitutional. You can't do this." Um, and actually, there were uh, back in I want to say it was either the late 1700s or early 1800s that there were even some places that tried to say hey you can't have cannons like nope that's that's too destructive you can't have them and the courts actually came back and said no you can't tell people what kind of guns they can have you can't tell them what kind of weapons they can have that's a complete violation of the second amendment so we're talking now about 130ish years after the second amendment that you know these courts are still upholding the hey you don't get to restrict these right so, and that's one of the big things was that the, nobody was trying to push the NFA as a, Hey, we're trying to ban guns. Right. Everybody was, they were trying to push that under the commerce clause and the revenue, uh, the, the ability to, to generate revenue. They were trying to make it a tax. Okay. That, hey, by making this excessive tax, 
we are going to prohibit, we are going to make it more difficult for people to have these kinds of weapons. So, um, the NFA, in order so to have, let me get this straight. I'm going to ask some questions as just a naive listener. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. As a naive listener, are you telling me that the people that have money that have been buying these automatic weapons and have been killing people with them are not going to be able to afford this at the end of this? Or is it just people that already couldn't afford the firearms that now especially can't afford the firearms? And that was a huge <laughs> argument against the NFA at the time. Right. A lot of the people that were opponents of the NFA were saying, hey, this is going to stop. These guys are making millions of dollars. There were actually some cops and politicians on the take who were millionaires because of the bribes that they had taken. So if the people taking bribes were millionaires, how much more were the ones who were bribing them making mm-hmm. if they, that they were able to just to shell out that cash in order to just keep people quiet? So there was big money here and that paying an extra tax to get these firearms was not going to be a, a difficult thing for them. Wouldn't be a huge deterrent, no. at least. And another aspect of it was that it was supposed to, you were ha- you had to go through essentially a background check. You had to, um, you had to pay this tax. You had to basically file the register the weapon, and you had to pay this tax in order to to have the weapon. And you had to. The idea was that if somebody was caught and they had an unregistered NFA item, that then they'd be able to arrest them for that. Because this was in the days before forensics was as good as it is now. There are a lot of times that people got off scot-free. Al Capone committed multiple, multiple murders, assaults, all kinds of things. And they finally got him for felony tax evasion because that was the only thing that they could make stick. Right. And so that was the idea that, Hey, this was really control and enforce it. Exactly. The normal way. And this was after they had they had done that, after they had gotten Al Capone with felony tax evasion, that they were saying, hey, we can't necessarily get these guys for these murders and these crimes that they're committed because we can't prove that the weapons that they have committed those crimes. We can't necessarily tie the, these guys to those crime scenes. But if they have them and they don't have a tax stamp, well, then we can arrest them for that. And so it was it was essentially creating a new law to arrest people because we couldn't get them. We weren't good enough to get them on the laws that they were actually violating. Right. And even the attorney general at the time who was really pushing for the NFA freely admitted that in order to to ban these items completely would be a gross violation of the Second Amendment, that they did not have the authority to do that. So the NFA really was not to ban firearms at all no it was to make it, it was more to expensive try to more difficult to right. get them well not just that it was to a raise money for the state yeah. so they could further enforce it that's number one yeah number two well, i wouldn't say it's number one that was that was an attempt but if you took that off the table that law wouldn't have passed would you agree with that if you took the money that the government would get from that tax if you took it away i don't think that law would go I would just say that that was said I, you had to no, register the firearm. That is that is a well the the, <laughs> the tax was really the one of the, the the entire points was that to make it more difficult. So at the time, a uh, Thompson submachine gun was one hundred and seventy five dollars. It came with an optional uh, compensator that would allow you to fire the gun more accurately, uh, mm-hmm. keep it on target easier, and that was an additional twenty five dollars. So the to- the total for the Thompson submachine gun and that optional compensator was two hundred dollars, and that's what they based the tax of the $200 tax stamp from the NFA on was that that it would be 100% of the price of a Thompson submachine. So you, to buy one, you got to pay 200% of market value. Right. 
So you're buying the gun and then you're paying, buying the gun all over again to have the tax stamp to, to, to <laughs> and to have it registered. And, and not just like we, we, there's been discussions historically growing up politically that there's, you know, issues with a gun registry, but NFA items are registered that you, you, the, the ATF is fully aware of who owns it and it can't transfer ownership without the F, the ATF being notified. So it is a registry. That is true. So, um, and to, to keep in mind, at the time, like two hundred dollars was was a lot of money. Sure, I mean that equates to about like thirty eight hundred dollars today. Okay, so that was something that you know not everybody was going to be able to do. The, the price of a Studebaker truck at the time was like six hundred and fifty something dollars. So you're a third of the way there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was it was a lot of money. It was something that now you're taking it out of the affordability of normal people because you've now doubled it. Right. The people who are actually committing crimes with this, they have the money to throw to throw at that. Yeah. That's not a concern for them. Well, and I think part of it, too, is they they understood that if they had it as a registry where the ATF had to be notified of the sale and transfer and purchase of the, the firearm itself, you know, especially nowadays, the, the way they do it, basically, you, they have to know where it's stored. And if it's gone for any extended period of time, it has to be that's, documented. So that's only if you have, um, that's only if you have an SOT. Okay. So that's but in order to have a Thompson submachine gun in your personal armory, you have to abide by those ATF rules. So that's actually the, if you were to have just a tax stamped, uh, machine gun, if you were to have a Thompson submachine gun that you would pay to the go tax purchase stamp today on, that you, you went and you purchased it, mm-hmm. you've got it. Once well, you don't you, just pay a tax stamp on it. You pay the tax stamp. You do the you do the background check. You submit the, the fingerprints and all the paperwork. And, and you have to have like an ATF license for it. No. For anything that's pre-1986, you don't. As long as the firearm was purchased pre-1986? No, as long as the firearm, as lo- if for, only for automatic weapons. We'll, we'll, we'll cover this. Okay. We'll, we'll get to this point. Remind me. Uh, yeah. So anyway, like I said, it was it was to be a tax. The actual, NF, the long title of the National Firearms Act was an act to provide for the taxation of manufacturers, importers, and dealers on certain firearms and machine guns to tax the sale or other disposal of such weapons and to restrict importation regulation or restrict importation and regulate interstate transportation thereof. <laughs> so again, it wasn't trying to ban them. It was trying to make it regulate them. It was trying <laughs> It was trying to make them more difficult to get. It was trying to make them more expensive. That was the way that they felt like they could prevent people from having them. And the, again, the argument was well, criminals aren't going to follow this law. And the, to the return was, well, that's exactly the point. Is this is this the only way that we can get some of these criminals? Um, so a lot of the... Uh, there were a lot of mobsters, gangsters, stuff that actually did purchase their firearms legally, but then there were a lot of them that didn't. So Clyde Barrow of Bonnie and Clyde, he was famous for using a Browning automatic rifle. He stole that rifle from a Missouri National Guard armory. He didn't purchase legally. Right. John Dillinger was famous for he had he used Thompson submachine guns. He also had a, a modified Colt 1911 that was fully automatic. And I think he had 50 round magazines or something. Anyway, a longer magazine than the standard seven rounds that uh, 1911 came with that he would, he would use that both objects were, well, actually I think he had two submachine, two Thompson's that he would typically use. Uh, and as well as the, the 1911, all of them were stolen. He didn't purchase any of those, right. not legally. So the idea is, so you're still, you're, you're providing a, 
you're, you're putting this tax, you're putting this onerous uh, burden on ordinary citizens for purchase. Mm-hmm. And that's not affecting the people who are actually committing the crimes. Yeah. And I would, the only pushback to that that I've heard um, from the other side of the aisle on this issue is that, well, by preventing Joe Blow citizen from having it, you're preventing them from having it stolen from them and used by a criminal, which is, is I think a logical fallacy. That is a logical fallacy. <laughs> but by preventing somebody from buying something, you're going to prevent another person from using something. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's not. It's like saying, okay, I'm going to prevent you from buying alcohol so that your kids can't steal your alcohol and drink underage. Exactly. Right. Well, you know what? They're, <laughs> They're going to find a way. <laughs> there, are other, there are other ways of dealing with that issue. Right. Uh, other than violating my rights. So, and actually <laughs> talking about violating rights. So the NFA that passed was not the NFA that was initially proposed. Okay. The one that was initially proposed was far worse in a lot of ways. So originally it included um, pistols and revolvers as well. Firearms at that no, point? No. Essentially the only thing that wasn't regulated under the, uh, the, the initial draft of the NFA were long rifles and shotguns. Okay. And so it was, and actually even short rifles were so initially short-barreled rifles weren't included so that was added later on that not it was before the passage but it was added later on in the discussion that somebody said hey well we're going to regulate short-barreled shotguns why don't we regulate short-barreled rifles well there was no evidence that short-barreled rifles were predominantly used in crimes so there's nothing to support whatsoever no but they just decided to tack it on there. I don't know if you have any stats, but I'd be curious as far as like how many of these automatic weapons and anything that fell under the NFA that passed in 1934, due to the percentage of homicides, what what did they take per capita? Like what was the rate of usage? Was it isolated to these gang violence or was this something that was more widespread, that was more socially an issue? So it was definitely more related to the gang violence, but it was not... um, I don't have a lot of the numbers for it. I don't. I don't have any of the numbers for it. But it, as far as like coming across, I didn't see anything that talked about just everyday citizens having issue with killing people in large numbers. With, with well, not not weapons. even in large numbers. I just wondered if maybe it showed up in like the homicide stats that like, hey, these BARs and these Tommies and any other kind of like you know the, any weapon that fell onto that NFA law that passed that they, they were like like there was a predominantly or highly skewed stat saying like. This is all that's being like all the homicides are being done because of these firearms, like no, with these firearms. So the the majority of the discussion, the vast majority of the discussion around the the NFA when they were trying to pass it in Congress was all about uh, organized crime. Okay, it w- there was very very little discussion of of everyday citizens and most of the everyday citizens um, and even like small town criminals, uh, small time criminals was brought up by people that were opposed to the NFA. Uh, a lot of the same arguments that we see today by prop- uh, opponents of gun control, things like, hey, you know what? You've got people that live out in rural areas, and you had a mm-hmm. lot more of those people back then that don't have the quick responses of the police that need to be able to defend themselves. Right. And this was especially like during the, the initial discussion for uh, the, the original version that said, you, hey, you can't have pistols or, or revolvers. And there was even the chairman of the committee said that I have never heard of a situation where somebody used a revolver or a pistol for self-defense. 
in in the very the I don't remember whether this was the NFA, the earliest version of the NFA, or was this whether this was a previous piece of legislation that they that had tried to been passed that where they were trying to ban pistols and revolvers, uh, where they said like you don't need them, use a short barreled shotgun. It'll be that's interesting. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. Whether they're saying that that's you're going to be able to be more accurate with that and more destructive with that. So that so it definitely wasn't to quail the amount of people you could kill. Well, no, it was. It, they were saying that hey, this is going to be a better home defense thing or personal defense thing. Uh, a lot of the discussion around because because of the organized crime, a lot of things people would. A lot of these these criminals were going in and they were concealing firearms, right. concealing them in long coats or even like a lot of times people that back then wore suits and stuff and they wore more clo- concealable clothing than we wear nowadays. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think, one of the main reasons why they decided to add short barreled rifles on there. You know, and the short barreled shotguns were were commonly used in in gangland crimes. Uh, and then, of course, the Thompson submachine gun was not a, a long gun, and you could easily take the stock off with just the push of a button. You could remove that stock. And so, yeah, there were a lot of people that were able to conceal those pretty easily. Suppressors are on the NFA. They're one of the control items. Were they were initially on the NFA? And that's what I'm about. So it's only suppressors that were able to be concealed suppressors that were designed for uh, uh, firearms that were like readily concealed. Or, so like a pistol suppressor. Okay. So originally suppressors that would fit on a shotgun or a rifle were not included. And so that's the only good thing about the original version of the NFA. Okay. Uh, that, so and, those, those and came taking later. Off short barreled rifles. Yes. That was added later. It was like Brady act time period. They were talking no, no, about this was or? all, this was all in the, in the discussion of before it passed before the NFA. No, no, no I'm talking about like the, the suppressors for rifles and that sort of thing being added to the NFA. Was that, that was later like the Brady discussion. era? No, no, okay. that was in the, that was added in the discussion before it was passed. So I'm talking about the original version of the NFA versus what actually passed. Okay. So yeah, in the original version, uh, suppressors for rifles and, and shotguns were not included. I, I want, I want to throw this in there cause it's a fun fact. So, uh, suppressors, machine gun, both items that are on, on the NFA made by the same family. So yes. So, uh, guy named, uh, Hiram Maxim, an American named Hiram Maxim was the very first inventor of a machine gun. What we today traditionally consider a machine gun. Okay. Um, some people want to talk about a Gatling gun, but that's crank operated. It's not operated it's by a crew served weapon. <laughs> it's not, well, it is a crew served weapon, but it's also, it's like I said, it's operated by a crank. It's not operated by the blowback and using the recoil of the cartridge itself. <laughs> A tr- even a modern minigun is still operated in a sim- way, similar way. You're just using a uh, an electric motor instead right. of a crank, which I think makes it fall out of the purview of the NFA. But <laughs> yeah, ATF, so would say, ATF would say differently. Miniguns, so, good to go. <laughs> yeah. So which, that's what I want anyway. But uh, so... Because like hog said, hunting, whatever. I don't care. They're just <laughs> awesome. They're they're just a, an incredible feat of engineering. Right. So even like the, the modern Gatling gun versus like the Sea Whiz, which is still oh, yeah. a, which is souped up version of the minigun. They operate essentially on the on the same principle. It, it, it so little has changed between those two designs, and the Gatling gun was developed back in the 1850s. So something that was developed back then has made it through to now with relatively minor changes in order to be something that 
were, were used to take out missiles. Yeah, missile defense missiles system on, on, for ships. For ships, yeah. <laughs> so really cool. Anyway, I will, I will get back to the, the topic at hand. Which, but, no, I'm going to hit on something real quick because we're, we're talking about the NFA, but also like it doesn't hurt to talk about motivation for just a split second. I, I think you and I both have an appreciation for the history of firearms and the history of American firearms specifically because there's been so much innovation. There has been so much that has, that has happened that it, we, we're not in a position where we can enjoy that history sometimes because of the way the laws are built around firearms. Yeah. And strictly from, cause you're, you're similar to me, you're very engineer mindset where you want to understand how something works. And you were the kid that kept asking the question why and didn't stop asking why. And so you wanted to understand how the intricate pieces of it worked. And you, you, you know, you want, so looking at it from a historic and a technical aspect, not a, there's no ulterior motive other than like, this is really freaking cool. Like, yeah. And, and why would you not be able to, to own that, study that research it, practice with it, use it. And for your own purposes, other than just, I, I just enjoy this history. I enjoy this part of the Americana. Well, I mean, the history of, of firearms is the history of America. Absolutely. I mean, if you like, a, I talked about in, in the last podcast, we talked about rifles. America's America developed rifles from, from the musket and made something that was far more accurate. Mm-hmm. Americans, I was, Eli Whitney, the inventor of the cotton gin, also put in the patent for uh, interchangeable parts. So he was the one who came up with the idea of, hey, if I if we make this, if we make certain objects to the same specifications every time, and they have interchangeable parts. It's going to be easier to manufacture. It's going to be easier to change out parts if something's broken rather mm-hmm. than having to have something specifically made. It's going to make, uh, just it's going to revolutionize manufacturing in general, and it did. But you know what the very first application of interchangeable parts were? Firearms. Yeah. Eli Whitney <laughs> was I did that to, to manufacture firearms. Mm-hmm. And so that was actually one of the major exports of America in the early 1800s was firearms made with interchangeable parts. Well, it was a huge export force during the First World War before we got involved. Yeah. We were assisting other nations. We were arming them up. And, and before the Second War, World mm-hmm. War before we got involved. I'm not 100% sure if the Gatlingo was developed by an American. We're going to run with think, it for right now. I think so. <laughs> um, but the revolver, while there, there were other versions of the revolver, the, the modern revolver was created by Samuel Colt, mm-hmm. an American. Going back to what I was started to get into before, Hiram Maxim, that was an American who developed the very first machine gun. His brother, Houston Maxim, developed smokeless gunpowder. Which is yeah. the, a huge jump, a huge revolution. Massive jump. Not, not only did now all of a sudden we, you weren't going to have this massive Plume. billow of smoke yeah. anytime you fired a gun, but you also had something that burned a lot more efficiently that was and able more to keep controlled. your gun, and it was able to keep your gun cleaner and it was able to produce far greater speeds, which increased the power of firearms exponentially so now all of a sudden we could take uh we could take projectiles and we could make them go supersonic mm-hmm. so that and that was really one of the only reasons why the world war one was able to be the trench warfare was the invention of smokeless powder allowed for um uh, the effectiveness of firearms to be stretched out to 300 yards when before like 100 yards was really the maximum that you were going to be doing with muskets and then you could stretch out uh, the, the invention of the rifle allowed people to stretch out to pretty much 800 yards. That they were able to do pretty effectively. But now all of a sudden you have... Well, for the layman, I, I want to cover this just really, really quickly. 
rifle, the word itself is is not so much like if you looked at a Kentucky rifle versus a musket, the layman wouldn't see much of a difference. The right. major difference is specifically there's grooves that are cut into the barrel that make the bullet spin. And by creating the spin, you get an aerodynamic proficiency of that, that cartridge and it's able to maintain its trajectory longer, more accurately. Right. But, and, but the thing is like what I was saying with the, uh, with the Kentucky rifles, the, the early American rifles, you were able to hit targets out a lot further, but you were sacrificing so much power that by the time it actually hit the target, it, it didn't really have the ability to do a lot of extremely yeah. effective damage. So now all of a sudden with the invention of smokeless powder, now you've got rifles that are able to fire ex- like fire rounds that go extremely fast, maintain a lot of momentum and are able to, to reach out so much farther than than anything that had been done before that point. And the last thing on this, this uh, you know, smokeless versus smoke powder, it, was that also what kind of brought us into the cartridge era? No, we actually had cartridges with black powder. Mm-hmm. So um, even in the Civil War, they were starting to go over to um, brass cartridges okay. as opposed to the... Uh, muzzle loading uh, weapons that they were using before. Anyway, so we've talked about uh, Hiram and Hudson Maxim. So Hiram's son, Hiram Percy Maxim, developed the suppressor. <laughs> and so you, people want to argue about suppressor silencer. For anybody who doesn't know, a silencer does not actually make a firearm silent. Anything that you see in the movies is bunk, unless that is a 22 caliber with a relatively decent size silencer. You're not going to get that movie quiet. No, and, but the um, they really it's, it's it, quiet enough that you most of the time can run without hearing protection. Yeah, the point is to make it to, that you can not damage your ears. So I mean, the the threshold for safe human. Uh, noise for just momentary uh, noise threshold is 140 decibels. A suppressor is supposed to take that normal gunshot, which is usually uh, up in the 160 range, and drop it down to below 140, so you're not sustaining damage. And there are a lot of rifle suppressors don't even do that. I mean, that it's just frankly, it doesn't. There, there are other aspects there are other advantages to using that i'm not going to go fully into now but that's that the idea is that it just takes the damaging sound and drops it down to a non-damaging sound it's still incredibly loud yeah so, so how long was this bill on the table that they were discussing this was it you know like one congress so like two years no this, this went on for a while like i said there were there were multiple attempts at passing uh, similar legislation. legislation before that. Like, it's, like I said, the, the thing that everybody blames it on is the, uh, the massacre, uh, Valentine's day massacre mm-hmm. that happened in 1929. The NFA didn't pass until 1934. Right. So there were multiple attempts leading up to this. It was just finally when it got to this point and I want to, it was in 1933 that I believe that they started the, uh, did they propose the bill or or at least start on the discussion of how to I think, compile yeah, it? I think that's when it was started. Um, and then, of course, the the final version and stuff wasn't agreed upon until uh, 1934, and it was ratified in uh, July of 1934. Okay. But um, like I said, the, the various arguments that were made that very much mimic the arguments that we hear nowadays, where it very clearly demonstrates that the people who are trying to push this legislation have no knowledge of firearms. Um, that, that becomes readily apparent when you hear people get in front of a microphone nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the original, like even in the NFA, the way it passed, it, def- it defined a machine gun as any automatic or semi-automatic weapon capable of firing uh, multiple rounds without manually reloading from one pull of the trigger. 
So a semi-automatic can't fire multiple rounds by one pull of the trigger unless you've got like a multiple barreled rifle, which they do have nowadays. Right. But yeah, unless you've got something that's multiple barreled, that that's not going to do that. That's not the way it works. Um, but the original version on the original, the original bill said that the same thing, but it said anything that's capable of firing more than 12 rounds in a magazine. So they were, and then the people who were against it were saying, what does, what does the amount of rounds have to do with anything? It seemed a little arbitrary. Oh, it's ridiculously arbitrary. But then again, so are the, the magazine restrictions now. It's, well, it's re- yeah, I guess my argument with that is like, what, what is there, what were they basing that off of that there was any kind of stat to show that like, that was the, that was the prime number. If you could pull a 13th shot, then this became a, way more dangerous. Like, I don't think there was stats based on that. <laughs> I think I think it was probably based off of a certain weapon of the time. Possibly. That, uh, maybe. I'm not, I'm not, I'm really not sure. Yeah, I mean, because like we were talking about, like the 1911. Number. So if you're talking about just a personal defense type firearm, eight rounds, shotguns, you're looking at, you know, back then three rounds, usually five, you know, five max. Yeah. So, you know, like I just can't think in my head. I don't think of anything, you know, you're talking about getting a, you know, banana clip into a, you know, into a firearm before you're getting above 12 rounds. I mean, you're going to, yeah. I don't know. To me, it just which, seemed, which, it seemed very arbitrary because I don't know if there's nothing that glares in, in the history that I have of firearms. I don't have like some super broad history and I'm not like super knowledgeable, but the firearms that I've, I've carried, the firearms that I've owned, the firearms that I've shot and dealt with and the ones that I'm, I'm aware of, I just 12 seems super arbitrary. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is super arbitrary. I'm like, I'm, I'm like nothing matches up with it. I don't know a single firearm that's like 12 rounds exactly. Oh, no, I, I know the several. Thing is like a KSG shotgun. I, I know several 14 of rounds. No, I know several firearms nowadays that are 12 um, rounds. But I'm saying but, like from that era. No, from that era, no. No, I don't. <laughs> but then, of course, they had uh, short-barreled uh, shotguns, which short-barreled shotguns were limited to 18 inches. Um, but again, a really arbitrary number. They, they wanted to try to prevent people from being able to, to hide the rifle. But I mean, even a 14-inch barreled rifle, if you've got a stock on it, is it's not easily concealable. No, it's not. So yeah, there were, there were, like I said, there was a lot of arbitrary stuff. They had, um, again, they had suppressors. Suppressors were, there was no indication that suppressors were being used in, in crimes at the time, just like with the short-barreled rifles. There was no indication that that was a predominantly used so thing. So the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. No, they the, didn't use the, suppressors. G- the gang violence that was occurring directly with law enforcement, you know, none of that's really, there's no like big tale that we're aware of, of like, oh yeah, there's a big incident that happened and they were all using suppressors and took the cops out. No, I think the main concern there was that, oh man, now we can, we can quiet the the sound of a gunshot. And I think that again, just like nowadays, a lot of people were thinking because, and the reason why people call them silencers is not because they make a gun silent, but because that was actually the patent name when Hiram Percy Maxim patented the, the silencer. He patented it as a silencer. That was the name. And we people started calling it a suppressor because it was more accurate to what it does. It suppresses the sound of a gunshot. It doesn't silence the sound of a gunshot. But anybody who argues, oh, it's not a silencer. Yes, it is a silencer. That was the original name. You're perfectly fine by calling it a silencer, even though that's not what it does. Right. But they, I think, that again, that was an issue of, oh, we're... It can make them silent. That means that they could do. They could kill people, and nobody would ever know because nobody could hear it. No, that's not the case. But again, these, these were not people that had an understanding of firearms. They were just 
purely motivated out of fear. And even when they were, when people were bringing up, like we were talking about the, um, the magazine restriction, when the people against the NFA were saying, Hey, that, that's just an arbitrary number. Like that really, that doesn't matter that when that doesn't make a, a gun, make or break dead, its deadliness. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't make it a machine gun that it's able to hold 12 rounds or more. There was a discussion about magazines and clips then in 1934 that they were talking about magazines versus clips. And one of the uh, senators famously like got all huffy about it doesn't matter magazine clip whatever you want to call it holds mag it holds bullets and yeah so it was just and I, that's not an exact quote but essentially <laughs> you, you got that flavor of it. right and it just that, that same kind of ignorant uh declaration that you just hear from so many people that are opposed to guns now and that those a lot of the same arguments of hey this is an infringement upon the rights of the people this is this is not what the founders intended this adversely affects the people who are law-abiding citizens this adversely affects people who live outside of um the immediate response time of most police officers all those things were very prominent arguments of the time against this and one of the uh things that frustrates me the most is the sacrifices that the national rifle association made in the passage of this they made a lot of concessions at that they point did. so in order to get handguns and pistols taken off or pistols and revolvers that's what the way that they they, they uh, label it in order to get pistols and revolvers taken off of the NFA. They allowed for machine guns to be, to stay on there. They say, Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll keep machine guns. You can put the tax on those. That's fine. Just let people keep their handguns and pistols, which yeah, absolutely let people keep their handguns and pistols. But no, the, the, the NFA should never should have passed. They never should have been allowed those limitations. And so that was, the first time that the the NRA really failed to uphold their um, their main purpose, so and that they've continued to do it throughout the, yeah. the 1900s and even on into today, and where they're essentially non-existent and renaming themselves because they went bankrupt. Well, they didn't, they're not renaming; they're moving. Right. They're they're moving to Texas. Okay, I was under the understanding they're they're having to rename as well. No. Okay. No, they're just reincorporating. Okay. But. Anyway, so they they passed the NFA, um, and there were uh, there were a lot of things that were problematic, a lot of problems in the way that things were worded, and there were some unintended uh, consequences. Yeah, there well, and there were some there were some Supreme Court cases that were brought up against um, against the government as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I think that'd be a great thing to start going into on the second half and figure we just take a break for a little bit, stretch our feet, go over our notes and be ready to hit the second half with uh, kind of where we went after the NFA started.